When a film wins a whopping 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, it's worth paying attention to, especially if it's like before 2010-ish, before the Oscar winners started getting weird. The original 1959 Ben-Hur is truly an epic film, in that it in some way defined the benchmark for the Hollywood epic. Every other epic film since then has sort of been compared to Ben-Hur, and as far as I'm concerned, nothing except perhaps the Ten Commandments comes close. It is indeed hard to get bigger than Ben-Hur. The 2016 remake was apparently an unnecessary flop and epic fail, so I'm not even going to acknowledge its existence. But the original was truly astounding on every scale. Story, characters, scope, cinematography, music, and of course its length, with a whopping three and a half hours. Yet the very soul of this story is in fact Christian, featuring the tale of a man whose life is literally interwoven with the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's deep dive today into why, 60 years later, Ben-Hur is still moving the hearts and souls of millions. You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Ben-Hur is a story set during the historical time of Jesus Christ, though the story is not really about Jesus at all, but about two other characters, Judah, Ben-Hur, and Masala. Judah is a well-respected, influential, and wealthy Jew living in ancient Israel, while Masala is a ruthlessly ambitious Roman tribune. At the start of the story, we learn that Judah and Masala have grown up very close and were in fact best friends. But as adults, their differing views on the world would soon drive the sharpest of wedges between them. Masala becomes loyal only to Rome and worshipped Caesar as God, while Judah was loyal to his fellow Jews and worshipped only Yahweh as God. When Masala realises that Judah would not use his influence to quash the blossoming Jesus uprising, they become sworn enemies and things spiral badly from there. One day, as some Roman VIPs were marching past Judah's house, Judah accidentally knocks some roof tiles off which fall onto a passing general knocking him out. Though it was clearly an accident, Masala uses this excuse to conveniently arrest Judah and his family, wanting to get rid of them once and for all. He sentences Judah to slave labour on the war galleys, while Judah's mother and sister are sent to prison. On the way to the galleys, Judah stumbles into a mysterious man who offers him a cup of water whom we know was actually Jesus, but Judah doesn't. The encounter is only brief because the man moves on and for many years, Judah works to nearly breaking point rowing the galleys, driven by sworn vengeance against Masala and the hope of seeing his family again. One fateful day, a Roman general called Quintus Arius arrives on his flotilla. Having been impressed by Judah's faith and integrity as a man, Arius favours the slave and has him unshackled from his position as a rower. Then, during a fierce naval battle, the unshackled Judah ends up saving Arius from drowning, and the two drift off alone on some debris until they are providentially picked up by another Roman vessel. Taken back to Rome, 
Arius honours the nobility of Judah, and even though he was a slave, he ultimately names him as his son and heir to great wealth. But despite this prestige, Judah's heart remained with his people back home. So he decides to leave. When he arrives back to Jerusalem, he learns through his love interest Esther that his mother and sister were already dead. And so, vengeance for their lives suddenly burns deep in Judah, and he becomes hell-bent to kill Masala. We, the audience, know that Judah's family are not actually dead, but rather had become lepers and were now living in exile in a leper colony. But Judah doesn't know this yet. He soon meets an Arab horseman named Sheikh Elderim, who convinces him that the one way he can execute vengeance against Masala was to enter into the charioteer races and humiliate Masala on his own turf. Being a skilled horseman himself, Judah agrees. Then, in one of the most amazing pre-CGI scenes in cinema history, the charioteer races take place before a large crowd, and eventually, Judah beats Masala, who is severely injured during the race. After the race, he hangs on long enough for Judah to have one final conversation with him, but instead of reconciling, Masala mocks Judah, saying that even after seeking vengeance and getting it, he still wouldn't feel satisfied because his family were now living as lepers, a fate considered worse than death in that era. Masala then dies, and Judah is left in turmoil, wanting both to be with his family and to punish Masala for his crimes, but unable to do either. But Esther has faith, and hearing of that strange itinerant preacher named Jesus, believed that if they travelled together to see him, he might cure Judah's mother and sister of leprosy. And so they go, only to realise that this same preacher in Jerusalem was now being put on trial, mocked and forced to carry a cross. Everyone is heartbroken, for Jesus, their last hope for healing, now appeared a failure. As Jesus carries the cross and falls, Judah recognises him as the mysterious man who had given him water, and so hastily offers him a drink of water from his own ladle, before being obstructed by a soldier. Jesus is then taken to Golgotha and nailed to a cross, and dies. But as the sky darkens and rain pours down, the blood of Christ washes in a stream down the valley to where Judah's family were sheltering in a cave, and they are miraculously healed of their leprosy. But the greatest healing comes from Judah, for when he hears Christ on the cross forgiving his enemies, Judah finally receives the grace to let go of his hatred for Masala and to forgive. Baptised as it were by the falling rain, he soon discovers that his own family are healed and he embraces them. And there is one final shot of Easter morning and then the curtains close, credits roll, Amen. Okay, so there's a rather epically long story in summary. There are many, many themes worth exploring in Ben-Hur, but today I want to offer you just three reflections. The first will be on the key question that Ben-Hur poses us. What do you worship, and how much are you willing to compromise for what you worship? The second will be a reflection on the inner war raging within Judah for like most of the film, the war between vengeance and forgiveness, justice and mercy. And the third reflection will be on how Ben-Hur as a movie reflects back to us that our individual lives are always caught up in God's life and that our individual stories are always caught up in God's story. Reflection 1, a meditation on what we worship. At their core, Masala and Judah Ben-Hur are not very different, or at least they shouldn't be. 
Both are strong, athletic, both are skilled in armed combat, both are wicked charioteers, both are fiercely loyal, and both are patriots. In fact, we know that before the start of the movie, they were the bestest of friends. But what differentiates them as the movie progresses is what they have chosen to worship. Or more accurately, whom they have chosen to worship. For Judah, this was Yahweh, the God of Israel, while for Masala, it was Caesar, the Lord of the visible world. Judah lives for the kingdom of God, while Masala lives for the kingdom of Rome. Judah believes that real power comes from heaven. Masala believes that real power comes from the world. Judah is a man of the spirit. Masala is a man of the flesh. There's a very good scene early on in the movie that captures something of this tension of worship. In fact, it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Listen closely now to this argument about God and Caesar. I notice how the two friends begin the dialogue as friends and by the end have become the worstest of enemies. Tell me, did you, did you think about what I said yesterday? Yes, I've talked to a number of people already. Spoken against violence, against incidents. Most of the men I talk to agree with me. Most? Not all? <laughs> no, not all. Well, who does not agree? Uh, resentful, uh, impatient. Who are they? Yes, Judah. Who are they? Would I retain your friendship if I became an informer? To tell me the names of criminals is hardly informing. They're not criminals, Masala. They're patriots. Patriots! Yes, like patriots! Judah. Judah, let me explain something to you. Something you may not know. The Emperor is watching us. At this moment, he watches the East. This is my great opportunity, Judah, and yours too. If I can bring order into Judea, I can have any post I want, and you'll rise with me, I promise. And do you know where it can end? Rome! Yes, perhaps at the sight of Caesar himself. I mean it, I mean it. It can happen, and this is the moment, Judah, I swear, this is the time. The emperor is watching us, judging us. All I need do is serve him. And all you need do is help me. Serve him. You speak as if he were God. He is God, the only God. He is power, real power on earth. Not, not that. I would do anything for you, Miss Sally, except betray my own people. In the name of all the gods, Judah, what do the lives of a few Jews mean to you? If I cannot persuade them, that does not mean I would help you murder them. Besides, you must understand this, Marcella. I believe in the past of my people and in their future. Future? You are a conquered people. You may conquer the land. You may slaughter the people. But that is not the end. We will rise again. Uh, you live on dead dreams. You live on the myths of the past. The glory of Solomon is gone. Do you think it will return? Joshua will not rise again to save you, nor David. There is only one reality in the world today. Look to the West, Judah. Don't be a fool! Look to Rome! I would rather be a fool than a traitor or a killer. I am a soldier. Yes, who kills for Rome. And Rome is evil. I warn you! No! I warn you. Rome is an affront to God. Rome is strangling my people and my country, the whole earth. But not forever. And I tell you, the day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. Good. 
Either you help me or you oppose me. You have no other choice. You're either for me or against me. If that is the choice, then I am against you. Gosh, they simply don't write dialogue like that anymore. As you notice, what each man has chosen to worship ultimately shapes everything else in their life, and the divide becomes clearer and clearer as the movie goes on. Jesus himself tells us, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So let's turn the attention back to ourselves now. Which master do you worship? God or the world? Bishop Robert Barron is famous for saying that you can tell a lot about a person by simply asking them one question. What do you worship? While most of us listeners would say Jesus, the reality might unsettle us when we probe deeper with a peculiar question. If an alien from outer space were to observe the way I live for a week, what would he conclude was the ultimate goal of my life? This is a telling question, for it exposes the possibility of idolatry, the worshipping of some other thing instead of God. You can also recognise what you really worship by what you are most willing to defend when attacked. If Masala had come and threatened Judah's property or his title, I think Judah would have been upset, but he wouldn't be willing to die to defend it. But because Masala attacked God himself, Judah was willing to put everything on the line. He is such an attractive role model precisely because he was willing to defend the highest good, even to the point of great personal cost. This is inspiring for us today, because many Christians in our culture are facing, or will soon face, such similar choices. It may not be the literal Rome that is an affront to God today, but yet the spirit of Rome still exists. Worldly values, earthly power, idol worship, political ideologies, and the dehumanizing of the dignity of life. Where might Rome today be battering at the very doors of our churches and the doors of our own hearts? Reflection 2. The War Between Vengeance and Forgiveness You know, if you were to ask the average person what they remembered most about Ben-Hur, people would say, it's a really long movie, or the chariot race scene, or the ramming speed scene. But for me, the soul of Ben-Hur is very much the internal war raging within Judah, as everything he once loves is taken away from him. We watch Judah's slow descent from reason to madness, from order into chaos, from virtue into vice, and then of course, his journey back out again. His struggle makes him relatable. You will recall that Judah is pretty much, for half the movie, driven by revenge towards Masala, and nothing, not even Esther, could keep him from throwing everything into the chariot arena in order to get back at him. The tragedy of it all though was that even though Judah beats Masala fair and square in the races and his enemy is literally dragged through the dirt, Judah still remains a prisoner of revenge. He had drunk from the cup of salt water as it were and every gulp was making him thirstier still. To rub it in, the dying Masala mocks Judah by saying, the race is not over. In other words, by him dying, he would leave Judah forever in the shadow of vengeance, because he the enemy still haunted him through his leprous family. 
This completely derails Judah even more, and he is left dangling in a living hell, unable to be together with his family and unable to satiate his thirst for revenge. This is where the film's poetry reaches its climax, when Judah literally stumbles with his family into the Passion of Christ. I used the saltwater image earlier on purpose, because one of the most poignant scenes in the movie took place earlier in the story, when the imprisoned Judah in chains meets Jesus, who gives him a cup of water. This short three minute sequence is one of the most moving in the movie, but I won't go too much into it here, but will encourage you to watch it again on YouTube or something. Anyway, during the Passion of Jesus, when Judah meets our Lord carrying the cross, he now hastens to give a ladle of water to Jesus before being shooed away by a soldier. This act of giving water to the source of all living water is then what sets Judah free from drinking the salt water of vengeance. At the foot of the cross, when he later hears Jesus forgiving his enemies, the torrential rain baptizes Judah as it were, giving him the grace to finally forgive Masala and to let go. In Judah's own words, Almost the moment he dies, I heard him whisper, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then I felt his voice take the sword out of my hand. One of the most famous quotes in Ben-Hur comes in the form of a question of, How do you fight an idea? With the answer being, with another idea. Well, in this ending scene, you can see that the idea of vengeance does not simply fade away. It must be replaced with another idea. And in Judah's case, it is mercy. Dear friends, the story arc of Judah represents any of us that are caught in the bonds of unforgiveness. God only knows how difficult it is to truly forgive, especially if the betrayal has been deep. Yet, as the saying goes, Unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and expecting the other person to die. It is here that Ben-Hur offers us a glimpse into the unique grace Christ offers the world. It wasn't Judah that ends up forgiving Masala, but rather the forgiveness of Christ flowing through Judah. In place of the salt water of vengeance, Christ gives him again living waters to set him free from the chains of unforgiveness. And if all we can do today to forgive is to sit and be drenched by the rains and rivers flowing in that final scene, then that would be a worthy enough prayer. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on the Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. There's one final feature I want to highlight about Ben-Hur, the literal interweaving of Judah's story with the Jesus story. Aside from the water scene and the crucifixion scene, there are other instances of this that I didn't mention in the summary such as the encounter with the wise men and the Sermon on the Mount. Aside from these more literal biblical encounters, you also notice a sense of fate and the hand of providence working all throughout the Judah story, such as the chance saving of the Roman officer, the chance appearance of the ship that rescued them, and the chance meeting of Sheikh Ilderim, who offers Judah the four white horses to chariot with. 
I'm not exactly sure how to express the following invitation, dear listeners, but I do want to encourage you to recognize your life as part of a bigger story, God's story. In doing so, you can learn to accept your temporary sufferings with a fresh new perspective, especially if they do not seem to make any sense in the present moment. Like with Judah, realize that events are not random and that there is a hand that reaches out and guides you towards your part in God's bigger story. Even if you feel you've lost your way and are totally gripped by sin, as Judah was, God will always continue to provide little nudges and lifelines, seeking out his lost like a shepherd for his sheep. It's fitting then that the face of Christ was never actually shown throughout the entire three and a half hours, for perhaps the director was suggesting that the face of Christ is actually more present to us than we'd like to think, veiled in the everyday people and circumstances for those who have the eyes to see. And on that mysterious note, dear pilgrims, I wish you well until our next epic adventure. Journey forth, take care, and God bless. Thank you.